Hello, and if I was an imitation, a perfect imitation, how would you know it was really me? Welcome to Best of the Rest, the show where we take a second look at movies that were technically poorly received upon release and challenge ourselves to only talk about the things we like and what the movie does well. This week, we are talking the 1982 film, The Thing. My name is Chris Logan, and I am joined, as always, by something that looks and sounds exactly like my co-host, Andrew Williams. Are you ready for this one? Andrew? Don't have to send, don't have to send me further into my existential crisis here. All right. Um, <laughs> I only look and sound human now. Fantastic. Um, but uh, yes, I uh, very ready for this one. Um, real tough episode. It's gonna be a, it's gonna be a hashtag PP, but uh, we have to power our way through this one. Dig deep and somehow find nice things to say about one of the, the greatest thing. science fiction movies of all time. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's your history with this movie? I mean, we talked about John Carpenter before. I know you're yeah. a big John Carpenter fan. Uh, it's obvious already you're a big fan of this movie. So, when did you first see it? Is it something you revisit often? uh probably about once a year i have that moment where i'm kind of like ah, i should watch the thing uh typically when it's like really cold outside i was gonna like, say like, like first snow you gotta put yeah on like the thing. there's like you know the first day that it hits zero you're kind of like all right it's time to watch the thing um and just share in my my trapped paranoia that i can't leave my house without you know freezing to death but uh but no i um, obviously didn't see it like as a kid because you know it came out and 82 and you know throughout my childhood my parents weren't just like oh let's show andrew the wholesome family entertainment that is the thing um so you get older you start digging into movies a lot and you see john carpenter's name come up uh, especially with stuff like halloween and things like that so you know probably high school college is when i really like dived into his filmography and probably watched this for the first time and uh yeah it's it's awesome it's it's one of my favorite science fiction movies it's if somebody said it's John Carpenter's best movie, uh, I wouldn't think they were crazy. It's got an awesome poster with art by Drew Struzan, um, which I have a thing of somewhere. Um, poster and- is so good. It's legit. Uh, as I've said many times, you put a gun to my head and say, Chris, what's the best movie poster? I would say put the gun down. It's not that serious of a question. Uh, <laughs> but my go-to answer is Jaws. I think Jaws is the best movie poster ever made. Yeah, But like you were just saying, if someone said The Thing was the best movie poster of all time, I wouldn't call them crazy. It's probably, I don't know, top five, my personal top five anyway. Yeah, it's always wild to me, like, you know, um, like, obviously, we, we both follow a lot of, like, poster websites. We see a lot of the stuff that, like, Mondo, now made by Mutant, the, the Mondo kind of replacements and uh, bottleneck, all those, and it just feels like there's so many posters for the thing. Like every feel, it felt like for so long there. Like I know Jock did one. I know there's a really famous one by uh, Tyler Stout. There's a whole bunch of uh, Jason Edbiston did one, and it's always funny to me because I'm just like, you know, guys, the, there's already like a perfect poster for this movie. Yeah. Like it's one of those things <laughs> where like it's one of those things. Like don't get me wrong, those posters are great, and some several of them fetch tremendous amounts of money. Um, the Jock one and the Tyler Stout one in particular, but it always kind of got me that finally, like it did turn out though, that some places were just like, why don't we just like screen print the real one 
And so I think I think Bottleneck recently did one that had the full credits and everything on it, and that's the one I was able to be like, all right, we're gonna we're gonna get that one because just a great poster. I think Mondo did the uh, they did just the art, which don't get me wrong, it's very very cool. Like just the dude standing there with everything, and uh, it's very cool. But like I like having the the typeface of the credits on it and everything. It adds something for me. But yeah, like great, great, genuinely for me, one of the most iconic posters of all time, and one of those things where it's like we've. We nailed it on the first try. Don't keep trying to. Like, if somebody announced a thing poster right now, I would kind of be like, why? Yeah. It's like Jaws it, 2 it is very similar. Touched. Like, I know they've done Jaws posters and they've recreated the original Jaws poster and stuff. And I'm like, cool. But then there's like 80 other Jaws posters. And I was like, guys, we've <laughs> we nailed it. First try. Legitimately this time. <laughs> <laughs> My history with this movie is not as extensive as you. I've been aware of it for a long time but never actually sat down and watched it until like 2020 2021 it was like during pandemic lockdown era I was yeah. like, you know what i should probably finally see this and i did and i enjoyed it. it it wasn't an instant classic for me as you know it's been built up obviously by so much by then i don't know it quite clicked the first time i watched it but watching it for this podcast it's only the second time i've watched the movie and i found a lot to like <laughs> we'll have a lot to say i enjoy i enjoy this movie very much uh i actually saw the thing 2011 before i saw this movie the thing 2011 which was kind of a remake of the movie but actually it was a prequel to the movie it has had the same title so don't confuse the thing with the thing that we're talking about today which is a remake of the thing from uh outer space is that the title of that original movie but it's not actually a remake of that movie it's just based on the same source material so it's more of a re-adaptation of the short story uh, who goes there? I believe. Yeah, I it's called Who Goes There. Me, so, yeah. uh, perfectly not confusing. I was able to do all that off the top. It's like of True Grit. Being a follow, it's along. like True Grit. It's like you know the Coen Brothers didn't remake John Wayne's True Grit. They readapted the novel True Grit. Yeah, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory is not a remake of Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Readaptation month. That might that might be something we can readaptation. That would be we'd be digging into the barrel for that one, but. Uh, no, it's, yeah, and you're correct. There's there's the thing, there's the thing from another world, which was uh, 1951. Uh, that was a uh, man, just an old old film. I think that was Christian Nyby who directed that. Um, I think even uh, RKO Radio Pictures did that one, which you know that was the old Orson Welles Citizen Kane studio. Um, so you have that one, uh, and then you have obviously the source material who goes there, which is a 1930s, uh, by John W. Campbell. Um, and it's like a short story. Like it's not, it's like a novella. Like it's not, there's not a whole lot of meat in that bone. Um, but it is a concept. I think you can wring a lot out of. And, um, so you end up like, if you watch both movies and read the source material, they're all kind of like, they're very alike in certain ways, but then it's interesting how they all approach it very differently. Um, so, and then obviously you do get the 2011 thing, which I have actually heard. Uh, I have some people I know that actually think it's a little underrated. Um, they think it's pretty good. The only real problem is that it's kind of living 
in the shadow of basically John Carpenter's version. But I mean, the- so my experience watching it, and I, I don't remember much about the marketing, but I went into that movie under the impression it was a remake of The Thing. I was like, all right, yeah, I'll just watch this modern version. I haven't seen the original. And it played like a twist ending to me. I don't think I'm spoiling anything about the movie. Like, at the end of the movie, it clicked for me that this was a prequel to the events of The Thing. But I don't think that was the intention. I think you're supposed to know it's a prequel. And certainly, if he had seen The Thing, you would recognize. I mean, it tells the story of the Norwegian base camp. So, like, you would recognize how it fits into the story. But it was like a twist ending to me. So, I kind of like that. I, I actually am because I, I remember it coming out, but I really don't remember a whole lot about the marketing or the production. But yeah, like that movie ends with the dog from the beginning of the thing running away from the Norwegian base. Like that's that's how it ends. It segues directly into um, the, fir- the the thing. It, it's a direct, like literally, like you can watch them back to back. They take place in that amount of time. And uh, like I said, I do have I have friends that believe it's underrated. They think it's it's not bad. And so I have not rewatched it in some time. Um, wanted to keep my mind clear for this one. But uh, the short story of the production of that one is that it was made as a love letter to this movie, complete with gnarly, practical special effects and creatures. The studio panicked, took the movie away from the director and filled it with CG, like literally covered the practical effects with CG creatures because they thought modern audiences wouldn't be into the practical effects. And now it's known as the crappy CG version of the thing. But we were, we were this close to something really cool. And that original version with practical effects, like it like doesn't exist. They can't ex- release it if they want to, I believe. So yeah, kind it's kind of like, tale. uh, yeah, it's kind of like, um, uh, what's the one Paul W. S. Anderson Event Horizon, the one yeah, about yeah. yeah. So it's a very similar one. Where, like there's a big campaign to get this original version released before the studio panicked and kind of cut it to bits. But that that version isn't hiding anywhere. Basically, it can't be recreated, and uh, it's it's always a bummer when that happens because it feels like you you hire a group to make um uh you know, make a movie and then they make it and then you take it away from them because you got paranoid. And it's like, well, you know, uh, how much money did you have writing on a thing prequel slash love letter to the point that you felt the need to pump millions of more dollars into it to do that? And it's it's just unfortunate. It happens a lot. It happens in a lot of different ways. It happens in a lot of different forms. I mean, it still sort of happens. Um I'm it's, not saying I mean, it never results in still being a good movie, but you look at the track record, it's not a recipe for success. Like, what, what, it, do, we do? what do we do? I, I'm genuinely trying to find a movie that did have significant studio interference after the movie was, like, wrapped that came out better. Like, you can think of tons of examples where it came out worse, like Event Horizon or Kingdom of Heaven or you know, the thing or whatever, and find these examples of where the studio were fantastic, you know, fanforstic, um, where, uh, a studio comes in kind of at the 11th hour panics and is like, Oh no, this isn't going to be successful. And then they chop it up or redo it or whatever. And then it turns out it's still not successful. So you spent million or justice league, justice league is probably the best example. 
you know, WB after Batman v Superman got super paranoid, which I'm not saying they shouldn't have, but at that point you'd already invested in it. What are you going to do? So they panicked and ultimately made a movie that's arguably super forgettable and ended up costing hundred, almost a hundred plus million dollars more because you sent them back to reshoot essentially the whole movie. And it's like, cool. You were better off just releasing it as it was and recovering after that. Like it's this idea that if they fix it, it'll be more successful. But I don't think the math is there to support that spending millions more on a movie to quote unquote fix it ever results in the movie being more successful. I can't I can't think of that. So anyway, this movie. <laughs> this movie we're gonna dive into it. Let's just uh set the stage a little bit here. It's released June twenty fifth. 1982 made on a budget of 15 million dollars at the box office it brings in 19.9 million doesn't quite hit 20 million in north america this releases back then were a little different today it doesn't have a huge chinese release or anything like that i only had the information for north america i'm sure it was limited if at all in other territories it's probably made quite a bit more in re-releases but again we're talking about Upon release here. It what what box a, office did you say it had? 19.9. North that America. includes all of its re-releases. That includes the re-releases? Yes. Oh my. All right. So this is, yeah, a box office failure. Critically, if you look at Rotten Tomatoes today, it says 85% critic score, 82 audience, very well received and praised across the board. But you look at when those... Reviews are coming out, even on the critics' side, it is almost entirely re-evaluations in modern reviews. Now, our theme for the month is technically, right? Technically, the movies we're talking about this week were poorly received upon release. We talked about it failing at the box office, but also critically, this movie gets panned upon release. Somewhat notorious, it's become kind of part of the legend of this movie. So I hopped on MRQE.com, a website I've talked about in this podcast before, Movie Review Query Engine, and I looked up some historical reviews for The Thing. Here's one from someone we all know, Roger Ebert, gives this film two and a half stars. Not the lowest rating, his scale's out of four stars, but it is not exactly a kind review. It starts off by saying, The Thing is a great barf bag movie, all right. But is it any good? I found it disappointing for two reasons. The superficial characterizations and the implausible behavior of the scientists on that icy outpost. And he goes on to say, The Thing is basically just a geek show, a gross-out movie in which teenagers can dare one another to watch the screen. There's nothing wrong with that. I like being scared, and I was scared by many scenes in The Thing, but it seems clear that Carpenter made his choice early on to concentrate on the special effects and the technology and to allow the story and people to become secondary. I mean, that's just writing off the whole movie as a... It's all shock value, right? It's all about right. gross-out. Uh... This uh, here's another review from uh, Vincent Canby. This is published in the New York Times, and it's even harsher than Ebert's. John Carpenter's The Thing is a foolish, depressing, overproduced movie that mixes horror with science fiction to make something that is fun as neither one thing or the other. 
Sometimes, it looks as if it aspired to be the quintessential moron movie of the 80s. And he ends the review by saying, The thing which opens today at the Rivoli and other theaters is too phony looking to be disgusting. It qualifies only as instant junk. Man. Um, and it, it really doesn't stop there. The, the thing from another world, one of its actors, Kenneth Toby, and its director both also criticized this film. I think you know, Nyby was quoted as saying, if you want blood, go to the slaughterhouse. All in all, it's a terrific commercial for J&B Scotch. Um, you know, he's like, it's a <laughs> um, uh, Toby singled out the visual effects, basically said they were so gross that it basically like took you out of the movie and made it a whole different thing. Um, it's, uh, there's, there's kind of insane, uh, and then it, it, the, the reaction is, is felt other ways too. Um, John Carpenter apparently lost the job of directing uh, Firestarter, um, because of the thing's poor performance. Um, his previous successes had kind of got him a multi-film contract at Universal, but they bought him out after this movie came out. Um, and, you know, people will say that, like, his output after this is not the same as his output up to this. And I don't want to go that far. I don't think that's fair. But, um, it, yeah, it's, um, uh, yeah, it's, I'm, I'm pretty, it's pretty open that when this movie came out, People did not react kindly. I'm pretty fascinated by all this. Like, yeah. One thing I will say, this is a gross. One of my notes is literally, this might be the grossest movie ever, (laughs) which not literally. (laughs) There's stuff that, you know, like, I don't know, like human centipede. There's stuff that like it aims to be gross. And I don't know if that was necessarily the goal here, but it is a pretty gross movie. So, and, and here's the thing, like, if you're aiming to be gross, so what? Like, you know, if your movie's got, you know, substance otherwise, who gives it? Like, that sure, sure. should be, yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm, tr- I'm trying to wrap my head. Like, it almost, like, this movie, it had to have had some Defenders upon release, but it's very hard to find. It seems almost unanimously panned upon release and kind of grew a cult following over time. And now, I mean, it's, it's almost beyond cult following status. It's just yeah. recognized widely, critically, and otherwise as an all-time great science fiction movie, but it is it is wild that seemingly no one got it upon reception. And I, I'm reminded of something. We talked about Hook uh, a couple months ago, and I think it was actually our, our, our guest, friend of the show, Justin Michael, that said, you know, we're talking about the set, and it kind of got criticized upon release for being like, looking like a theme park ride and just being uninspiring. But we sit and watch that movie now, and we're like, wow, look at the practical set. Look at all the work that went into that. And it's like, well, at the time it was made, all sets were practical. So it didn't stand out. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there might be something similar going on here. Like, we can, especially this day and age, I and mean, the movie received a critical reevaluation. It didn't take that long for it to start happening. But this day and age, you know, we're just conditioned for CG and green screens and uninspiring effects. That alone, we can go back and like, wow, this is really refreshing. But again, at the time in 1982, it's not going to pop the same way because everything's practical effects. Everyone's everything's made that way. But then to me, there's that layer beneath that of like, you know, both those reviews I was reading, like 
dismiss the characters and plot and story as as no substance, but I think the movie has a lot to say, and there's been a lot of reevaluations on like what this movie says about society, uh, about men. And don't get me wrong, like I I think a lot of it maybe, you know, John Compter wasn't trying to write maybe a, a a metaphor for like toxic masculinity or anything like that. I think he just by logic it was all men there. But by having an all men cast, you're inevitably going to say something about men and the fact that they resort to paranoia and violence so quickly. There's a lot of messages to be found there. There's a lot of um, uh, opinion pieces written about this, about the the message. And I, I think it just, it works on every level, whether you want to really dive into the psychology, whether you want it to be a gross out movie, whether you want it to be like a fun thriller. It's just it, everywhere I look, I'm like, yeah, thumbs up. <laughs> 10 out of 10. Let's go. Uh, yeah, I agree. I think, uh, it is interesting hearing them dismiss the uh, the plot because that's it. It seems almost entirely focused. The, the the negative reviews feel heavily focused on just like how gross it is and like how nasty it is. Like they don't really, and then they just dismiss everything else. They're basically, and I guess like if you think all the effects are super gross and there's nothing to back it up, I guess that's why you think it's bad. But it's been interesting watching it back and, um seeing that kind of real time change but yeah it it's shifted and i think that's definitely part of it um and like everything's everything tends to be cg and there's a lack of practical effects now and i think that's certainly part of it but at the same time i think eventually people realize that like yeah these effects are super gross but like how hard was it to do that like how you know the fact that it's so off-putting and it's all practical, eventually it shifted and kind of people suddenly kind of were like, that's actually really impressive. Like, it's actually insane that you were actually able to do this in such a way with just practical effects to make it so uncomfortable. Um, And then, like you said, you get the reevaluations of the story where you kind of look and are like, oh, like, there's all these metaphors that you can imply from it and just the deep paranoia and the kind of nihilistic approach. Um, And, uh, I think eventually we kind of turn the corner and we're like, oh, there's actually a lot to really, really like here. And um, yeah, I, it's, I'm glad we turned around on it. But yeah, at the time, people, it, it felt like it's actually kind of funny. I think in, um, I think it's one of the seasons of Stranger Things. There's this, they have this like nerd teacher at their school who kind of got, you know, kind of their, their, their kind of mentor slash protector at their school. And he's like watching the thing with a date at some point and he's like super jazzed about it. And I was like, you would be the guy in the eighties that was like, man, the thing was great. Uh, so, um, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of wild to think about really looking back and just seeing how the tide kind of shifted on that. The movie's written by Bill Lancaster. Now, before this wrote the bad news bears, which, what a one-two punch, right? Um, tragically, he did die pretty young. He's only 49, passed away of a heart attack in 1997, so the credits. A uh, rather short filmography, but, I mean, two bona fide classics in there, <laughs> impressively. Yeah, I mean, Bad News Bears, the thing. Also, Bad News Bears go to Japan, and also apparently wrote an earlier draft of... Um, the Firestarter movie, assumedly, I guess, when uh, John Carpenter was involved, he kind of brought in uh, Bill from that as well. But like I said, he uh, 
very much um, died young, only 49 years old when he passed. Um, it's weird to see that he was born in 47, died in 97. Just the, the math there, I was like, man, you know, he's the same age as my dad, basically. But um, uh, very tragic. Um, but yeah, like you said, two bona fide classics to his name. Um, and it could have been a third one if Universal didn't panic. We could have gotten the Bill Lancaster, John Carter, John Carpenter, Firestarter movie. And as we've been talking about already, the movie's directed by John Carpenter. We have to talk about John Carpenter back on our Ghost of Mars episode. Uh, Andrew, you're a huge fan. I have not, I've seen a percentage of his filmography, but I like just about all that I have seen. Haven't done that deep dive, but I mean, just... I think I said on the last time we talked about him, I'm fascinated by this man's status and legacy because he is one of the most well-known directors, very well-respected today, but throughout literally his entire career is struggling to get movies made and almost never gets the credit upon release. I mean, Halloween might be the best example where he does uh because it's the most successful independent movie ever made at the time and it you know gets him this major label contract and everything but he also you know that becomes a franchise on its own that he receives almost nothing for and has had a complicated relationship with it ever since so even in that regard his biggest success it's it has this big asterisk with it but still we can all sit here and be like yeah he's deserving of a lifetime achievement he's one of the greatest of all time but I uh, never really had that moment where he was just given give it the reins. Yeah, it's um it's an interesting career very much because that 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 early run of Assault on Precinct 13 into Halloween into the fog into Escape from New York into the thing like it's a pretty great run. Like it's it's a pretty it's a pretty high bar there that you're setting. And then even after the thing you still get Christine and Big Trouble in Little China and they live and uh, in the Mouth of Madness, which is another one I know my friends tend to think is pretty underrated. Um, so you get these still hits in the aftermath that people like, but yeah, that pretty much, uh, and even Big Trouble in Little China and They Live, I think, have decent critical receptions and maybe not super great box offices, but he still works through the 80s and the 90s pretty regularly. And then it's generally seen that the one-two punch of vampires and ghosts of Mars kind of puts his directing career either by choice or by kind of association on hold he does do one last movie uh in 2010 called the ward which is a uh it's kind of a psychological horror film starring amber Heard, daniel pennebaker amongst others uh jared harris i think is there too um has done a few uh television things here and there uh he actually did just direct an episode of um they they did a TV show called um, I think it was called John Carpenter's Suburban Nightmares or something, and it was like one of those kind of trashy true crime shows where they like do dramatic reenactments of like uh, some true story with like intercut interviews with the real people, and um, he uh, directs one of those episodes, um. And he literally talked about how he was like, they directed it over Zoom and like he was directing it from his couch. And he was like, yeah, it's the best directing job I ever had. Um, <laughs> I can like, do this. Yeah, he's like, I can do this all the time. Um, this is so easy. Um, 
Uh, Suburban Screams. I'm sorry. Yeah, that's what it was called. And uh, he also did a couple episodes of Masters of Horror in the early 2000s in the kind of mid-aughts, too. And so you kind of get, um, he, he comes around occasionally, but it kind of feels like he can kind of just do what he wants at this point. He did sort of return to the Halloween franchise with the most recent trilogy, um, was a producer on those, and he also did the soundtracks for all three uh, with his son, Cody, and their collaborator, Daniel Davies. Um, so he's he's out there now. He's probably, it's interesting now, and I actually, I think I mentioned it on that episode, I saw him like in concert where he just played a bunch of like soundtrack music that he'd written over time. And he did play something from the Thing soundtrack, even though, even though Ennio Morricone did that one, uh, and it's a great soundtrack. I'm sure we'll talk about it a little bit more later. But um, it is, uh, yeah. So it's an interesting career. And here recently, within the last 10 to 15 years, it just kind of feels like he's content just doing random soundtracks and occasionally touring and occasionally releasing albums. And if there's a time that I guess he's kind of finally sort of getting recognition, it's probably now. Um and as far as why he doesn't do another movie, I mean, it, it, there's probably any number of answers to that question, not least of which is that John Carpenter is old. Um, he's 76. Um, you know, may just be that he doesn't want to do that grind again or doesn't really feel like a desire to do it. Like if I were that age and kind of had his filmography, I could very much be like, what's the point? Um, then again, if I win the lottery, maybe I can get him and Kurt Russell to make another movie. So I'd love to see it. Escape from Mars. Well, let's jump into this movie, Andrew. The Thing. You ready? Yeah. At an American research station in Antarctica during the winter of 1982, Two members of a nearby Norwegian research facility chase a dog onto the campgrounds and are killed in their desperate attempts to eliminate the dog. Some of the Americans, led by R.J. McCready, investigate the Norwegian camp and find it burned to the ground with no survivors. They recover a burned, mutated body and bring it back for examination, and the truth is soon revealed. The Norwegians uncovered a spacecraft in the ice and inadvertently unleashed a life form capable of assimilating any living creature and perfectly replicating their appearance. Like you do. Now, members of the research crew must desperately try to identify which of them is human and which ones may be a thing. I love the simplicity of the title of this movie. And the fact that we don't have an official name for this thing, because why would we? Why would these characters know? It's just it's just a a, a, a thing. Look at it. It's a thing. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, it's simple to the point, And that's exactly what you'd probably say in that moment. It's a heck of a plot, man. That's it, like just <laughs> you. You kind of forget that, like, they full on, like find a spaceship in this movie like it's exactly what i was gonna say i've seen it twice and watching it this time i was like i know there's a spaceship but i think i know that because of the 2011 movie because they they go into the spaceship i mean we never see the spaceship right it's all implied but no there's there's a big old spaceship in the ice they are yeah very much it looks like a map painting which it probably was but um uh anyway it's uh 
yeah, there's a lot going on here for a movie that's got a pretty uh pretty condensed runtime. Ultimately, it's under two minutes, hours, hundred nine, I think, with all said and okay. done. So, I mean, short on the shorter scale, you know, these days, you know, you'd make a movie that was twice as long, but um, but yeah, wild. Well, first thing we're gonna do is talk about this cast as we always do. And we're going to start with the high point, best casting, best performance of the film, because every episode, we recognize one person who goes above and beyond the Call of Duty that they actually elevate the quality of the entire film with their performance. And we recognize that person by giving them the Mark Strong Award. Andrew, kick us off here. Who is getting your Mark Strong Award for The Thing? Uh, I got to go straight to the top. You know, you think about it. There are some great performances here. Don't misunderstand me, but it's Kurt Russell as RJ McCready. Like there to me, there was no question. He's very much the star of this movie. Um, He is front and center of this whole thing. He has to carry the bulk of this kind of increased paranoia over the course of the film. And you see him start getting slowly unhinged more and more. You know, I know who I am, um, things like that. But uh, he does a great fantastic job with it i love kurt russell he's great in this he's great in pretty much everything that he's in um obviously escape from new york him and carpenter before this um even way before he did any of that stuff when he was in things like the computer that wore tennis shoes and (laughs) the strongest man in the world and stuff like that um i probably i don't know if i mentioned it on uh our um ghost of mars episode but um I was watching Big Trouble in Little China with um, there's a John Carpenter, Kurt Russell commentary. Pretty much any movie that John Carpenter and Kurt Russell did together, there is a version of that movie out there that includes a commentary track of just the two of them watching the movie. And every single one of them is wonderful. The one for this one is great. The one for Escape from New York is great. But the one for Big Trouble in Little China is really great. But at one point, John Carpenter is talking to him and he says... Um, he's like, you know, I never saw that computer movie you did. Um, and Kurt Russell is like, what? You never saw the computer that wore tennis shoes? Come on, John. That's like Citizen Kane at this point. Like, <laughs> they're just they're just laughing and having a great time together. And they filmed that commentary in like 97. So it's like 30 years after Kurt Russell made that movie. But um, uh, anytime those guys are together, they just do really, really fun stuff. And just hearing them reminisce about them is really, really wonderful, too. So I... You haven't watched this in a while, I'd watch it, and then I would watch it back with their commentary if you are capable, because it's just great. Those commentaries, unfortunately, I think are mostly limited to the discs, except for Big Trouble in Little China. If you go to Movies Anywhere, the commentary track for Big Trouble in Little China is there, oddly, with the two of nice. them, nice. which I don't know why they don't do that all the time. Like It's, it's just another audio track. I don't understand. One of the biggest losses as we move away from physical media is the lack of like audio commentaries. The best. Yeah, I just truly don't understand why um, you don't still put those on digital. Like, it's just literally, it's just another audio track. What's the problem? Um, anyway, uh, Kurt Russell is great. He's fantastic in everything he's in. Uh, obviously, after this, would still go on to have an amazing career, obviously, with things like Tombstone, Backdraft, the uncredited voice of Elvis and Forrest Gump. Um, <laughs> just great, great stuff. Um, but here... I think he's doing a great job as the center of this story about deep paranoia and claustrophobia and cold. Uh, just very have cold. We talk, have we talked about Kurt Russell in this podcast? I don't know. I don't think so. Maybe. It's weird. I'm trying to Nothing's, think. Nothing has come into mind. I mean, we've talked about uh, you know his doppelganger, his identical twin in acting, but 
not the man himself. I um, think. yeah, because we haven't talked about um, we didn't talk about escape. Obviously, we haven't talked about any of the. We didn't talk about overboard. We haven't talked about tango and cash. Um, we haven't talked about backdraft. Um, Captain Ron. Um, <laughs> so we, we might talk about him again. After we might talk about him again. Executive decision. Escape from L.A. I'm sure Escape from L.A. is another one. Probably we could do a Kurt Russell month. That would just make me feel bad though. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, three thousand miles to Graceland. If we wanted to do an Elvis impersonators month. Um, Featuring a Mark Strong Award winner. David Arquette. David Arquette. God, I was blanking on his name. Thank you for the save. (laughs) Uh, Andrew, here's the thing. Um, I had Kurt Russell pinned in as my Mark Strong Award winner. But there's someone else in this movie. I I, I think is deserving of a Mark Strong Award. But I'm not going to change my answer just because you gave him one. That's not that's that's against the spirit it's of the not who we board. are. So now we have integrity on this podcast as you <laughs> as you yawn through what you just said. Um, I, <laughs> I'm going to give I'm going to give my Mark Strong Award to Kurt Russell for all the reasons you're saying. He carries this movie. It is. I mean, he had some momentum already by this time. This this is a star making performance. If this was a hit movie, that was well-received, which it was not. But it is really good. The The script does a lot of work to make you cast doubt onto this character. Um, kind of don't know where he stands at certain times, but then he kind of comes back as the hero of the movie. Um, he's great. He's just awesome. Uh, Andrew, how old is Kurt Russell when he makes this movie? Oh, don't make me do that. Um, so if it was what eighty two, um, and so Kurt Russell was, uh, Kurt Russell is thirty one in this movie. <laughs> Years younger than you or I, and somehow twice the man, <laughs> Andrew Wynn. <laughs> Come on, not just twice. Um, <laughs> when will I get to be a man <clears throat> like that? When? Never, never. The 31. beard is just all show. Like I really try with the beard to make it look like I'm I'm tougher than I am, but it just doesn't work. My God, that means when he made Escape from New York, he was even younger. Like he was thirty in Escape from New York. My God. Um, My favorite part is uh, when he's in the early scenes of this, like when he's piloting the helicopter he wears like this 10 gallon hat like it has nothing to do with keeping him warm everyone's got parkas and beanies and hoods and he's just wearing like for fashion just a big old cowboy hat oh man man I he's was, cool i just i was just watching this uh there's some youtube for some magazine that does like they do like career breakdowns with actors where they talk about you know some of their key iconic roles they've done with like willem dafoe and people like that but they just did one for kurt russell and they talked about the thing and he talks about the hat because he oh really like so he wasn't originally going to be in it and they kind of were like uh because while they were making escape from new york like john was talking to him about this he was talking about all these actors and he would kind of get kurt's opinion on like who he should put in the thing and eventually like one of the producers on escape from new york went up to kurt was like hey he's probably going to ask you to be in the thing like he kind of wants you to do that and kurt's like all right and so they talk about it but apparently they'd already shot some of the footage when he showed up to shoot his scenes because they showed him the giant hat and he was like what is this like why <laughs> why do i have this giant hat it's cold out here he's like i'm not wearing this and they were like john already shot 
some of the helicopter footage with your character wearing the hat. Like they, that shot from the back where they're flying. Like that's not Kurt in the seat and he has the hat on and he was like, so the hat's already canon to the movie. So you're going to have to keep wearing that. And Kurt was like, what the hell? Like why? He does lose it after those early yeah. scenes. So yeah. I guess that's but, why uh, that's awesome. But yeah, it was, yeah, he was just like, what is this? Why do I wear this hat? This doesn't make any sense at all. But, um, but yeah, just wonderful. He has a, uh, even though at this point he has like a, a, one of our classic actors, he's been at this for decades, he still has this feeling of like um, like a golden age of this, like early talkies type actor, like this, yeah. this, this, the golden age delivery. of Hollywood type thing. Like, yeah. yeah. And like, he, he like learns to like weaponize it over time. Like I think of the scene in like death proof whenever he like imitates John Wayne, but he's could just as easily be imitating himself from like earlier movies. He's got right. He's got line deliveries in this movie that have just had that 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 big kind of dramatic energy that's a little campy, but yeah, but works, works to his benefit in most of his movies. So yeah, yeah. And what now a- he's and now he's Santa Claus. So it's just <laughs> what a career. Um, Elvis and Santa Claus in one man's career. That's pretty dang impressive, guys. Um. Andrew, Ooh, I I mentioned great. that there's someone else that I was was considering for the Mark Strong Award. Ultimately, I think you just have to go with Kurt Russell. But this is essentially the debut of Keith David, and what a first movie! He has one very small credit before this, but this is like his first actual uh, speaking role, and he is. Probably, I mean, he's not, he should be second or third build. He's not just because he was so new, but character wise, he's the second or third lead of the movie. Um, I love what he's doing here. I love that he, how antagonistic him and Kurt Russell are and how that story plays out, especially with the final scene of this movie and how, again, you're always kind of, as these characters are wondering who they can trust, you, the audience, is wondering who is either a thing or who's going to snap, who has ill intent, and you kind of go back and forth between these two as far as like who's on the up and up, who's antagonistic, who is out for themselves. Um, their dynamic is just, you know, Kurt Russell getting the Mark Strong Award, but his dynamic playing off Keith David, he owes a lot uh, to that to that dynamic to them two on screen, and I just. Keith David, we have talked about in this podcast before. Um, huge fans. We love the guy. And again, for this being a film debut, it's just astonishing. What did we talk about him on? Keith David, when did we officially talk about him? Are you going to call me out like that? I just remember discussing I am. him. Just because I also don't remember what... I know we've talked about him, but I don't remember in what. Um, oh my god. He's a the replacements. The, I mean, the he's barely in the replacements. He's like in that for like thirty seconds. Is that all we talked about him on? I feel like there was definitely something. That's just my link that was purple. I don't even remember him. In the replacements. So that I'm he's the, he's the he's like the the spokesman for the striking football players. Like he's like literally in it for like a scene. Um, but I guess that's that was it. probably all we needed to, to talk <laughs> to about. Go him. on a um, tangent and talk about Keith David. I mean, I would, it, it, it works for me, um, but anyway, Cloud Atlas, um, Cloud Atlas, Cloud Atlas, Cloud that's Atlas. what it was, okay. Cloud Atlas. Okay, Cloud Atlas, that, that makes more sense. Um, man, when, 
He's I forget he's in Cloud Atlas too. Um, but uh, a few times. He's yeah, he, as with everybody else in that movie. Um, but uh, anyway, yeah, we we talked about we talked about Keith David. He's great. There there is no. Um, he's fantastic. Um, he's obviously in this. He gets a bit of a rapport with John Carpenter because he does come back for um, three teams with him uh, in They Live, where he has the very famous alley fight scene with uh, Rowdy Roddy Piper. Yes, um, that has been pastiched, parodied, homaged to great effect in a variety of different media. Um, and just just always out there, like just a character actor. And like I remember him from like bit parts and things like The Nice Guys, uh, where he plays one of the thugs. Um, oh, thug sounds wrong. Uh, one of the henchmen. Um, obviously, he's just great in everything he's in. I probably mentioned it in the episode. He plays. He's in the sixth season of Community, the show, like where the where most people would be like, oh yeah, the first three seasons are great, and everything after that's bad. Like he shows up as like the de facto sixth member or the like sort of eighth member of the group in the last season. And he's just so perfect. Like he, every joke he has is great. He stands out. Like all these people are like legacy characters of the whole show. He like comes in and just stands out almost immediately. And it's perfect. He has a whole big conversation where somebody like they're sitting at the tables and somebody says the word black and they all look at him like concerned. And he looks around and he's like, what? Somebody said black. So you need me to make sure that it's okay. He's like, I have a brain the size of Jupiter. I'm nobody's fourth Ghostbuster. Um, and he just says a whole bunch of lines like that. And he's just fantastic. So um, I will never be sad to see Keith David on my screen. I think that is a great shout out here. He is, like you said, this is basically his first movie. He plays a bit part on Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood after this comes out. Like, that's that's how early on in his career that this is. Um, that uh, he's doing guest appearances on shows after having a sizable role in a major film. And you got to wonder if this movie had been a massive success, what does that do for Keith David? He's still done just fine for himself. Don't misunderstand me. But like, I think if this were some smash success on all fronts, he might've found himself shooting up the, the uh, credits list pretty fast, but he's fantastic here. Uh, he is one of our survivors uh, or is he, um, you know, obviously the question everybody has at the end of this movie, um, but he's great. He's Keith David, and he did just take over the role of um, Commander Zavala in Destiny after the uh, very tragic passing of Lance Reddick. Uh, he kind of was brought in for that, and it was one of those things where I'm like, well, if we can't have Lance Reddick, Keith David's about as, uh, about as fantastic a replacement as possible. So I'm into that. Uh, tremendous also, voice work, too. I was about to say, like, he's narrated, like, a ton of WWE documentaries. Like, he really Oh, has, has. he? I, yeah. That's awesome. Um, I was thinking, like, obviously, Todd McFarlane Spawn. I think we've talked about him uh, doing the voice there. He's the voice of the president in Rick and Morty, which I love anytime his character shows up. Um, I'm reading through his credits here, Andrew. Did you know that he's the voice of Goliath in the Gargoyles animated show from the 90s? I think I, I haven't watched that show in so long. It's probably obvious if I go back and watch it now. I think Goliath is like the main guy, I think. He is. Um, that's Keith David. He's like wow. the leader of the gargoyles. While he, well, basically, while he was doing Spawn, he was also doing gargoyles. Or was man. he? Is there a crossover there? Yeah, ninety four to ninety seven, and then Spawn. Ah, I guess it's right after. But yeah, he's gargoyles. He's like the main guy. Also, the main guy on Spawn. Born in nineteen fifty six, Andrew. You know what that means? 
He's 26 years old when he makes this. Uh, it's depressing, really. (laughs) (laughs) You said that first. You were like, he was born in 1956, and you know what that means. And I was just like, no? Uh, And then you had to go and throw that on me. God. Oh, man. Um, Let's talk about Wilford Brimley, who was old as heck when this was made. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Wilford Brimley plays Blair, uh, the senior biologist. Um, Quick question. I'm going to have a lot of questions for you about the lore of this movie. Um, do we know what they are doing there? They're a research facility. Do we know what they're studying exactly? Uh, not really. It's not really okay. brought up throughout the it's course a pretty of the film. A, a eclectic, you know, different jobs and stuff. So well, yeah, I think sure. a lot of it's a lot of it's just different people that are there to keep the people there alive. Um, because you got this, this kind of idea. It's the same idea as like the space station. Like there's probably like thousands of people that are working all the time to keep those 12 people on the International Space Station alive all the time. So you've got people at this station that aren't researchers or scientists. They're like mechanics, or in McCready's case, he's the pilot. Like, they're people that are, like, there to assist in this research facility staying operational versus kind of anything else. I like the 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 the, the ultimate point of what you're talking about is I love when they go to the Norwegian sort research facility and he picks up a bunch of the papers just sitting on the floor. He's like, yeah. what are you doing? He's like, this might be important work. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, he's like, no idea what it is, but it might be important. Um, uh, and they may uh, mention it yeah. in passing at one point what exactly they're doing, but I, I, it's never brought up as a major plot point, obviously, because things start going wrong almost immediately. Well, Wilford Brimley's character, Blair, is one of the first to realize what's going on here and exactly how serious it is. He uses his super advanced computer to determine the probability that this life form can take over the entire planet and how fast that can happen. And seemingly his paranoia gets the best of him and he goes crazy and starts destroying the communication equipment so no one can escape, starts shooting at the other guys and they're forced to lock him up. And this is like, this is really the onset of the paranoia for the team. Like, has he gone crazy? Has he snapped at the situation? Is he a thing? Can they trust him? Can he calm down and be released later? We don't know. We have a definitive answer by the end. Uh, He does become a thing, but when exactly that happened is unclear. As a lot of this movie is. Um, Not to get too far ahead here, but. Part of like I'm trying on some level to track who is a thing, when they become a thing, when they had an opportunity, and eventually, like I just I gave up trying to do that. Like I'm sure online there's some like graph, someone just plotted it out, but kind of the point is that how hard it is to follow uh, when these things happened. You know what I mean? In fact, Roger Ebert says the opposite. He says it kind of killed the fun for him. Um, because they're on their own so much, you can't track it. But, like, I think that adds to the paranoia. That that part worked uh, for me. But certainly one of our earlier suspects is this guy here, Blair. Yeah, um, obviously he's the first one. The, the only reason I think he's not a thing during his initial break is because of how identifying it is. And the thing would not be doing that. So I actually do not think he's a thing 
in that first scene where he's like breaking all the communications devices and shooting at people because your brain is like, oh, well, the thing would want all the communication devices broken so that nobody comes and interprets it. But at the same time, it would not want to be calling that much attention to itself. Like it's trying to assimilate into the group and trying to do things covertly, not overtly. So I guess you could also argue that it was a learning experience, but this thing has already torn through an entire other base. It kind of knows what it needs to do. So my guess is in that moment, he's not a thing. He becomes a thing later. Here's another question for you, Andrew. Uh, the thing, they, they're they always aware they are the thing. Sometimes they get the sense that they don't even know when they are the thing. Until well, it's into survival mode that it takes over. It's possible. Uh, that's another thing that's never made expressly clear. It's like, you know, it says a single cell is all it takes for the thing to eventually take control of you. So is it a process? Is there a point where the thing takes control and it just continues doing what it's doing? You know, that part is pretty uh, vague um, as far as, like, do they know? Are they aware? And they seem to imply that it's aware because, like, there's that scene later where Kurt Russell's like, the thing would be upset that I was doing this, but it doesn't want to call attention to itself. So it's not going to try to fight me over what I'm doing. So... They seem to be implying that the thing does know it's the thing. The person is gone at that point. The thing just has control. Um, and I, I think, you know, you get infected. There's probably a point where the switch happens, I would assume. Because if it's a single cell, it's going to take time before it controls everything. So you probably don't sure. even realize you become the thing until you are the thing. And then at that point, you're gone. So... Great performance, though. I realized I kept getting sidetracked because this movie, I just, this movie is so fun to talk about. Uh, but Wilford Brimley does a great job going psychotic. Uh, I, I, I like the performance a lot. It's very good. Obviously, Wilford Brimley, known by many for his diabetes commercials, but um, <laughs> probably also Cocoon. Um, guess how old he is when they make Cocoon? Which is about uh, a bunch of old men that are over the hill and don't have high quality of life anymore. Oh no, is he like under 60? He's 51. <laughs> Which means when they make the thing, he is 48. <laughs> God, he looks so old. <laughs> I don't know what, I, I mean, I don't know if it's if technology's gotten better or what, but man, people seem to what, be aging. Tom Cruise is like 60, right? Yeah, <laughs> 60 plus. Tom Cruise is 10 years older than they were, than all the men in Cocoon were. Um... <laughs> <laughs> But uh, obviously, Wolford Brimley is you know, just a long career, just a great character actor, but doesn't really start acting until the 70s. He actually does have a minor role in the original True Grit. Um, a lot of television appearances had a bit part on uh, the Waltons as a Horace Brimley, interestingly enough, um, and just kind of all over the place doing everything that he kind of whatever he wanted to do, which, you know, good for him. But um and a really, really great movie called Brubaker, which uh, stars Robert Redford. But um, here, like you said, I think he does do a great job here. Um, like I said, he's kind of the uh, inciting incident for, like you said, all the paranoia. Like, he's the guy that really kicks it over. Like, weird stuff is happening, but we don't really understand what's going on yet. And he's the one that kind of figures it out. And then uh, just he's the one that kind of kicks it into overdrive. And he is the chief senior biologist of the facility so he's the one that like you said looks at all the data and actually able to kind of crack 
uh, what happens. But um, yeah, it's a great performance, and the I think I think the switch happens some point in the shack after after he gets to the shack. I think mm-hmm. after the shack is when he gets turned into the thing. So him like because feeding to get out to be let back in. Thing. That's the thing. Got it. Uh, all right, Andrew. The rest of this cast. Okay. Um, I mean, no disrespect, but do we do we speed run this? Do we? I mean, it ranges from like they are fodder for the thing to they have a few key scenes. Um, but there's a lot of cast members here, and I'll be honest, I will have, I'm gonna struggle to place them. Uh, exactly. So like. Uh, thankfully, Wikipedia is nice enough to list their job along with their name, which is going to be very helpful. Um, but David Clinton as Palmer, the assistant mechanic. I don't. Who is this, Andrew? Uh, so he is the assistant mechanic. Um, okay. I am looking <laughs> I at this picture one. right now. So he is. Um, he's the guy that's always wearing headphones. He's got the denim vest on. Um, Okay, uh, he's kind of crazy from the beginning. Or out yeah, there. he looks a little. He looks a little stringy. He's the, he's the guy that if you asked me which one of these guys was an alien, I would point to him first. Um, so he's uh, he's um, Palmer. He's the assistant mechanic too. We didn't mention this, but Keith David plays Childs, who's the chief mechanic. He's so he's the main guy that's obviously trying to keep these guys alive while. McCready is just the helicopter pilot. That's literally his only job. And he's got his whole own shack, which is awesome. Gets his whole own place to hang out. Um, so David Clinton, yeah, he makes it relatively deep into the movie. He's the one that uh when they're doing the blood tests, fails. Right. So he's the one that's uh transforms um and kills uh his head splits in half and bites the head of uh windows windows yeah. windows who's the radio operator played by thomas waits who is a relatively minor role but he's the guy that's you know endlessly in the radio room getting berated by people for not being able to contact anyone <laughs> yeah. because they think he'll be able to do something <laughs> but uh but yeah so uh yeah we'll knock out the two there at once so palmer is like i said he's the guy that when they're doing the blood test fails and windows is the radio operator who gets killed by palmer thing Richard Dysart plays Dr. Copper, the physician. Um, is he the one that does the autopsy and gets his arms cut off? Bitten off well, the, the, the arms cut off isn't the, the arms cut off isn't during the autopsy. That's what he's trying to bring, I think. Um Right, right, right. So bring trying to bring somebody back to life. I forget exactly who he's trying to bring back to life in that moment. Let's look. Um He's trying to bring back Norris, who's the geologist, and that's when he goes to like defibrillate him one more time, and his chest opens up and eats his hands. So, <laughs> so um, cool. <laughs> uh, so yeah, Richard Dysart plays that character. Uh, he's one of the older guys too. Uh, he was uh, fifty three when this movie was made. Um, so apparently, since we're listing everybody's ages, um, yeah, he's the guy that's just—he's the one that's doing all the autopsies. He's the one I think that finds. Um, uh that the uh no it's Blair that autopsies the remains and finds that they have a full set of human organs so never mind but um copper is the one that actually suggests um testing the infected blood against the uncontaminated blood and that's when they go to like the locker and they find all the blood's been drained out okay 
Uh, how about Charles Hallahan as Norris, the geologist? I'm drawing a blank here, Andrew. Uh, let me remind myself who he is. Um, we, I think he dies early on. Uh, maybe. I don't remember. Um, let's find out. Um, even I can lose track of some of these guys. Um, so Norris is one of the ones who goes with them to the spaceship. He's the one at the spaceship. That's not, um, Kurt Russell or the other guy. Um, and, (laughs) (laughs) um, Norris is the one that like estimates that the thing's been, that the ship has been buried for over a hundred thousand years. Um, and, during the thing where they are debating if they're going to allow McCready back inside, uh, and then he's holding them all hostage with dynamite, uh, he's the one that has a heart attack and looks like he collapses. Oh, okay. And then he's the one that when Copper is trying to defibrillate him, Norris thing eats his hands. Um, cool. Uh, okay. Um, how about Peter Maloney as George Biddings, the meteorologist? I, I believe he is the one that after they do all the blood tests. No, he's not. Um, he's somebody else. Um, <laughs> so uh, I thought he was the one that was tied to the chair for a second there. He is not. He's the one with the beard uh, that's balding. See, um, that doesn't narrow it down. Goes at McCready uh, with a knife and he gets shot in the head? No, that's the dog handler, Richard Mazur. Um, God. But uh, <laughs> I at tried. least I remembered that. Um, <laughs> uh, let me see if the wiki helps me here. Um, Uh, so see the one that kills himself before he can get killed by the thing. I know. Uh, so he <laughs> gets. So apparently, Bennings is the one by himself, and he's the one that's getting like absorbed. But Windows interrupts the process, and then McCready sets it on fire. Oh, okay. Yeah, um, he's got like the yeah. hand still. Yeah, like still. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Gnarly. Uh... <laughs> Richard Mays replaced Clark, the dog handler, who tries very to upset McCready, at what's happening. Um, shot in the head. Gets murdered. Yeah, so he's and yeah, it turns out he's not a thing. Uh, he was fine. Uh, I also remember Richard Mazer from Encino Man, where he plays the dad. Um, have we talked about him before on this show? Not to my knowledge, but I would love to talk about Encino Man one day. And he's also in Multiplicity, you know. The movie was so great, it has Michael Keaton in it four times. Um, great, uh, movie. great movie. Um, but probably also could be talked about on this show. So, um, but anyway, yeah, he's so he's the one that like notices that the dog thing at the beginning, he's the one that notices the creation of that. And he's the one that when they're starting to shoot the dogs, gets really upset. Um, and then ultimately, yeah, gets shot in the head by McCready because he tries to disarm him. Uh, and it turns out that he was not a thing, which a lot of people, you know, he's definitely one of the sources of misdirection because there's several moments where they kind of keep him apart and keep it. This movie is very, very good at truly, honestly, giving anybody a chance to be the thing like you, it really that sense of paranoia is just so yeah. palpable because it really does cast doubt on everybody. And you kind of have to ask yourself, are you projecting your own doubts onto these characters? Are you projecting like your own kind of paranoid thoughts about like, oh, well, we didn't know where you were for this, so we have no idea. Um, and uh, Clark, that Richard Bazer's character, is one of the first that kind of really seems suspicious. Um, and then the twist is ultimately that he was the trustworthy one. Joel Polis plays Fuchs, 
the assistant biologist. He's the one they find his burnt corpse outside. He goes okay, outside for something, how he died. and they don't know how he died. They, that's when they like float the idea that maybe he set himself on fire to stop being assimilated into the thing. Um, they suggest that maybe that's what happened, but they don't really know. All we know is he goes outside, um, and then we find his burnt corpse. Donald Moffat plays Gary, the station commander. Now, I know who this guy is. He's the old guy. Not confused with the other old guys. Definitely right? not. Um, he's the he's eyebrows. Um, he has one of the funniest lines in the whole movie. Oh, is it the couch line? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when they're yeah. done with the blood test, he's the last yeah. one they check. He's not a thing. And he very calmly says, as he's still tied up to the couch, I know you gentlemen have been through a lot, but when you find the time, I'd rather not spend the rest of this winter tied to this f***ing couch. <laughs> Just absolutely perfect. Yeah. Um, he's, yeah. He's the one you can definitely remember. Uh, no problem. Uh, no problem at all. Is he the guy from Hot Shots or am I just confusing him because of the eyebrows? Which guy in Hot Shots do you think he is? Uh, the guy that like puts the the handkerchief in his ear and it comes out the other ear. That's Lloyd Bridges, man. Damn. So I'm just confusing him because of the eyebrows. <laughs> Apparently, yes. I was like, dude, you better not be confusing this guy with Lloyd Bridges. And well, you I just did. totally did. Guess who Lloyd Bridges is the dad of? Jeff Bridges? Yes, he is. Huh. Yeah, I was trying to do the ages in my head. I'm like, is he really old enough to be his dad? He is. He was born in 1913. Um, Jesus Christ. Lloyd Bridges. See, Lloyd Bridges, unlike everybody else, was old as hell when he made all those movies in the 80s. So, um, but yes, uh, no, I do love that line. That line is great. Uh, I just love that. Like, he starts off so calm, like, guys, it's been a rough night. Get me out of here. Uh, and um, uh, he's the Would one that's say like, R.I.P., by the way. Uh, yes, Donald Moffat passed away about six years ago. Uh, about five over a little over five years ago but um just a, you know another kind of great character actor was all over the place was on the original mission impossible um kind of a who's who of kind of looking at his career but um yeah he does a good job here he makes it pretty deep into the movie um but ultimately um does not survive and that's it andrew we did it we went through the whole cast and we identified all of them Good job. You left. Did we talk about TK Carter? Nulls? Oh, did I skip over him for some reason? I think you did. Um, Damn. Well, he's the cook. That's an easy one. He roller skates everywhere. He does. Um, and and he's uh, the one. One of our final girls. He, he's the one that we do not see his fate. Um, we do not see what happens to him. Um, he is kind of with them at the end because uh, it's McCready. Gary, Nalls, and Childs, I think, at the end. Um, but that's when uh, Gary gets killed and Nalls disappears. Um, and there was apparently um, a scene that kind of uh, explained what happened to Nalls. Uh, and that was um, going to be a scene that very outrightly uh, he was going to choose to commit suicide instead of get absorbed by the thing. Like that was going to be one of the scenes and that was going to be what he did, but it got cut. Uh, as they got the script closer to completion. And I think it is included, though, in Alan Dean Foster's novelization of the film. 
Uh, those are always weird. Like back when movies all got novelizations, apparently that still happens. Like I talked yeah. about how like Halloween ends has a novelization that I bought and haven't read yet, but like all three of the new Halloween movies have novelizations. And apparently that's still a thing that happens, which is just wild to me. I guess it's easy money. The story's already written. You just, yeah, basically some, some journeyman writer is given an earlier copy of the script, turns it into a book and then they publish it. And, hmm. I don't know. Like I've heard the Batman Forever one is actually really interesting because um it's using one of those earlier scripts with a uh, lot of the cut scenes. Yeah. So I might have to hunt that one down. But uh, anyway, so Nalls, TK Carter, he's the guy that skates everywhere and then also kind of like I said, we see Gary die. Um we do not see Nalls. What happens to Nalls? We do not find that out. Um all right, Andrew. Well, with that out of the way, we can talk about the scenes <laughs> of this movie. Uh, of course, we're going to start with the best scene of the film, or at least our personal favorite. So, Andrew, in your opinion, when is this movie firing at all cylinders, and what is the best scene in The Thing? It's so gross, but I have to go with the reveal of The Thing, basically, when the dogs are all in the kennel, and they're like all like watching in horror as this thing forms. Really? It's Favorite so disgusting. Scene. I did not see it's this one coming. It's so disgusting. But like I'm thinking about movies that like stick in my head. I'm thinking about scenes that like stick with me and like man, that scene is just and it it's very much like where all the seeds get sown as far as the rest of this movie is going and the only solace to me is that the dogs are all very fake. Um because otherwise I would be very very sad at what was happening. Sure. But um but like just the effects that are being pulled off here, the things they're doing, like when all the red little tentacles just like burst out of the so thing, gross. just like yeah. it's so gross. But also like there's clearly so much work going into this and so much care. And it the fact that it doesn't look like you know a bunch of cheap people swinging around wires, like the fact that it looks as good as it does, and it's as horrifying as it is, and just watching all of these characters like real-time react in horror to this thing that's happening in front of them that, you know, is completely otherworldly. Like, just, that's the scene that's burned into my brain, so I have to go with that one as far as, like, being at the top of the list because I can never forget this scene. And it's far, it's the encapsulation of what we're going to get for the rest of it, so. When the dog head, like, peels apart and you've got, like, the inner dog head, it is so rad. It's Um, so gross. (laughs) So, Andrew, help me understand the thing a little bit more. What exactly is this creature doing in scenes like this? Is it trying to grab the life form, pull it in, and absorb it and become larger? Is it just trying to infect other life forms so they become things? It's trying to absorb the other dogs. I, I This I'm not entirely sure. Because like, obviously it's trying to... The question you can ask yourself is, in that moment, is he trying to become powerful enough to kill everybody in the station? Uh, Because when he impersonates people, obviously he can't get to everybody just by being one person. So the idea is he has to keep infecting people and keep doing things, and obviously that's how he goes around. In this scene, I think he's just trying to absorb the dogs and potentially become a monster that can just take over the station and continue rampaging. But ultimately, he has to retreat from that because he gets killed. Um, so in these big moments where the thing reveals itself, I think it's attempting to potentially attack slash defend itself. Um, and it is usually either interrupted or destroyed before it reaches the end of that. Um, it feels like maybe it's a flight or fight response. I don't know, 
but uh, that's kind of how I've seen it. Like in that moment, he was trapped. So he's like, I'm going to absorb these other dogs. I'm going to be able to break out and be able to continue on what I'm going to try and do, which is infect the entire world. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one thing I love about the scene is that when they do all come to start shooting it and trying to kill it, um, it tries to escape by like reaching for the ceiling and pulling itself up through the ceiling. Uh, it's unable to do so. And I feel like it gives these characters a false sense of safety when they're like, wow, that was crazy, but all right, we killed it, right? This is, this is the alien here in this cage. We killed it. Um, so it was crazy, but it's over because they don't know about the replicating. Right. Uh, well, they don't know about the replicating, and they also don't know that, like you said, at that point in the movie, somebody's probably already a thing. Right. Because there's that scene where the dog walks into somebody's room and they're not paying attention. Like, there's plenty of other misdirection there to suggest that the thing is already in at least one of them. Um, and I always, I always love the debates because it's kind of like the, they strike me, at least these ones have like some foundation, but it always like, it strikes me as like a little similar to the, is uh, Deckard a replicant from Blade Runner, which is a fun conversation I'm sure we won't be having in the next couple of weeks. Uh, <laughs> next week, but, I think. Uh, um, but just people like hyper analyze every sequence, like almost like a, it's like the Zapruder film where like yeah. frame by frame they're going by and they're like, look at his expression here, but then look at his eyes here and then see how he read. Like, so they're trying to like pinpoint the moments that people become things. And like you said, I'm sure there's probably a graph out there that talks about, you know, when everybody presumably became a thing. Um, and then obviously the ending gets debated pretty heavily on who, if either of them are the thing. And, um, but yeah, that I think that's another great point. It's like that's the moment where they're like, "Whoa, close one!" Like they're all like, "This was fine." <laughs> like got out of that one alive, not realizing one the replication or two, and maybe that's what it was. Maybe all it was was a distraction. Um, and in that moment, do we know if it got anybody else? You know, we have no idea. So, um, turns out when you have an amorphous monster that plays by its own rules, just do whatever you want. <laughs> but, uh, um. But this scene's just burned into my brain. Like I'll, I'll always remember this one. And so for me, it's kind of the first big, like, cause it's the moment the movie kind of reveals itself. Cause like you have these moments leading up to it with like the deformed corpses and things like that. And you're kind of like, like you're getting there. Like the tension is building. Something yeah. is weird. You're not sure. And then this is the moment where you're like, Oh, we're all screwed. Like there's no, like there's no coming out of this one. That's the moment where like all the characters should be like, we're not leaving here alive. That doesn't happen obviously until much later, but just, I love this scene. It's great. I didn't see it coming, Andrew, but it's obviously a worthy pick. It's a great scene, very memorable. And for all the reasons we're talking about, it's kind of our first introduction to the gross stuff and what this movie has in store for us. But I'm going to go with what I think is going to be the, uh, a classic or popular pick for best scene in this movie and go with the blood tests. Um, this is, sort of the the peak of tension in this movie for me paranoia is running rampant they don't know who they can trust it's to a point where they are tying mccready is having everyone tied up and testing their blood so they can definitively uh figure out who can be trusted who's the thing i love that we've been talking about a blood test for most of the movie and the, the scientists have been like really trying to devise like a very scientific way of determining this. And then he finally gets the idea that like, 
And when he explains how he comes to this realization, but every cell in a thing is out for itself and goes into survival mode if attacked. So he's simply going to apply heat to someone's blood. And if it reacts, they're a thing. I love the simplicity of that. And there's so much tension here, though, because we don't know for sure if this test is going to work. Um, but on the other hand, like I've seen a movie before. Someone's going to be a thing. Like it, it's it's going to happen. It's coming. Right? It's coming. Yeah. Uh, so the the tension, the the distrust is getting sown like even further because he's tied them up. They're talking trash to each other. He tells uh, uh, I'm gonna look at my list of names here. He tells <laughs> Gary, the leader, he's going to test him last. Um, uh, I love it. And uh, for all the gross things in this movie slicing a thumb open is one of the hardest things for me to watch. That is something about that, like when he slices it and squeezes it out. But the moment where he puts the hot wire into um, God, I'm going to give up on saying their names. Uh, Palmer. Palmer, thank you. Uh, Into the Petri dish with Palmer, and it like just leaps out like a giant hand coming out of it, and the blood falls, and we know he's a thing. He's got no reason to hide anymore. So he starts transforming and the terror of like being tied to a couch with this thing that is revealing itself. It's insane. It's insane. Yeah, it's I mean, terrifying. the scene goes from Absolutely zero to 60. Um, it's so good. I love the scene. And then of course the big kill afterwards where his head opens up and eats windows. It's gross. Uh, the effects are awesome. Um, they're awesome in a way that, like it doesn't look real. Like I can see, I can see this. I just we've talked about before. Like I see this the work that goes into it, and that's what I love. Uh, it is a bit campy. Some people can say it's cheesy, uh, but it still works, and it doesn't undercut the terror. Like it's good enough that the scene still plays out the way it's supposed to, and has the right effect. It's just uh, a really good scene and a really good movie. Yeah, it's fantastic. I was hoping you'd pick this one because this is the other scene, obviously. <laughs> okay. It's top of my head. Um, this was the other one. But um, yeah, like it, it was just while you were explaining what happens when they put the wire into the blood, it just made me think of evolution um, because, you know, that's the whole thing where they expose fire to these samples and the stuff just explodes in, in life. And I was just like, is evolution just a comedy remake of the thing? Um is that all it is? Definitely um, going to be a future episode of this podcast. So I can't. I, to I was just like, out. man, I'm just sitting there thinking about it. And I was like, apparently it is. Um, apparently that's all evolution is. Um, but um, this scene is great. Like you said, the tension. And what I love about this scene is that like, obviously McCready has like, like at this point, like McCready is like pissed off every single one of these people. And they have no reason to trust him. But yet, as people are being cleared, they're like standing next to McCready to like look at who's left. Like, like the moment where Childs gets tested and he's clear, it like cuts and he's immediately standing next to McCready with a flamethrower with like out question. Like yeah. at that moment, like the the paranoia of like I guess the at least the truth. Now we know we you know we know we all at this point these people are who they say they are, but we still don't know who this is. So in that moment, the paranoia of the unknown overrides the kind of genuine paranoia of the known um so that's the other thing this movie has is you've got this like there's battling kinds of paranoia there's the paranoia of what you know around you versus the paranoia of what you don't know um and what takes precedence and in this case almost always it's the paranoia of the unknown and um 
it is just masterfully handled and this scene kind of encapsulates that whole thing. I love it. Uh, I was tempted to pick the scene that immediately precedes this, but I'm going to go ahead and separate them. Blood test, favorite scene, but right before this is uh, uh, the grossest scene in the movie. Um, it's the the body on the table that goes into survival mode. The head separates from the body and slowly uh-huh. slides down the table. It grows spider legs and like crab eyes and starts walking around. There's, there's even a bit of comedy there because like we just see in the background McCready and uh, whoever's with him just staring at this table in disbelief if they set it on fire. And then this spider head just starts crawling towards the door and they don't notice it. It's 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 a bit funny and I think it's intentional. Well evil dead uh, two there. Um <laughs> Yeah, with the hand crawling away. And then uh they they notice it and they set it on fire like I would have expected that spider head to like crawl off and be kind of a unknown that comes back later, but they kill it right away. Like it's it's just there to show us something really cool and gross in this movie. And I love it for it. Um, yeah, it's disgusting. I, I think yeah. in a lot of ways, it's maybe not the most iconic scene. Maybe that's not the right word, but the head separating and growing spider legs is like the special effects moment of this movie, I think. I uh, would agree, generally. Um, it's It's the moment that seems most impressive. I don't know, man. Like, there's a whole lot of impressive stuff in this movie. There's just, they, the team that did this, just, uh, whatever they got paid, it wasn't enough. Um, and, like, man, I, I don't know. Like, you mentioned that some people might find it cheesy. I, I don't know about that. I think it's all done, really, I guess maybe just with the advent of some modern technologies. But it's, to me, it's just all so well done. And it looks so good. Like, like I said, I guess you don't think it's real, but, like, I'm never taken out of the movie, like, watching it. And I've definitely seen yeah. practical effects where it's taken out of the movie. An example of this that's coming up is uh, there's a uh, a trailer for the new Ghostbusters came out um, and they kind of show um, they have some of the classic ghosts uh, from the first movie are shown in this new trailer and people are like comparing the shots of them in the trailer to the original movie and they're like man the original movie looks so much better like they they're they're kind of blown away that like the CG modern CG versions don't look as good as the original practical versions did. And it just shows that sometimes it just it, it's never going to quite be the same. Um, not to say that you can't use CG effectively. So many tons of tons of things do. Um, but just that especially when attempting to recreate things like that, you're you're going to have a bad time. But uh, just the way that thing sprouts the legs and the way it just oh, it's so unsettling and it's so unnerving. Like you're just watching it and you're just kind of like. Like your brain is also just like, no, guys, guys, over there, over there, get the thing. Don't, don't, don't let it get away. Like you're, you're begging yeah. these characters to get it and not let it get away because you're kind of expecting it to get away. But then thankfully they turn around and like, there's a moment where they're all just like, what the hell? Like they can't believe what they're seeing in front of them. And it's another pause for kind of like a, not quite comedy, but just like a brief pause to be like, uh, what? And then they finally set it on fire. And I was like, okay, thank God. Speaking of, like, the work that goes into this, like, I mean, this movie, like, we see how primitive computers are in this movie. There's, like, the chess program that he's playing and the probability, like, it is a far cry from where we are now, and it's clearly everything you see from, like, the opening credits is real and tangible. 
Dude, like, the way the the way the thing reveals itself on the credits, like where it burns onto the screen. The coolest thing. The so coolest it, thing. It is a trash bag on top of a aquarium. And then you they light the letters on fire in the trash bag. The letters burn away, revealing the thing. And then you have light shining through the water now whatever, holes yeah. in the trash bag to, to show the tile sequence. And it is it would so be cool. So easy to make today on a computer, but it wouldn't look not. Cool. It wouldn't look as cool. Wouldn't be as impressive. Not as awe inspiring. It's it's just ah, it's great. <laughs> it's it's it's, it's so fantastic. Good. It's and fantastic. I guess that's kind of the stuff that this has helped this movie's legacy grow over time. Appreciation for things like that, which were harder to, you know, in 1982, they didn't realize how special it was. You know what I mean? You don't, um, and I, I don't want to say that, like, you know, the only reason this movie's gotten reevaluation is because people it just add, no, not went the, into it. It's, it just adds to it. It just adds, it adds to, it. to it. But, um, but yeah, that, uh, fun fact, the only female presence in this film, uh, not to speak about problematic things or whatever, is the voice of the computer program uh, provided by John <laughs> Carpenter's then-wife, Adrienne Barbeau, um, who was also in the fog um and escape from new york but um and also west craven's swamp thing but uh yeah there's no other women in this movie um which again you get to the conversations about like toxic masculinity things like that um i think that's that's certainly a conversation to have but uh yeah the fact that mccready is playing chess on this old computer just again it's always it's it's always funny to me too because like when you watch a movie from the 80s set in the future Computers are still just as primitive. Like they're fancier looking, but they still have like the right. black screens with just the green text. And it's just like you don't assume that in the next fifty years we're gonna move beyond like line protocol, but no. I one thing I love about this movie is its um its restraint in explaining things. It gives us enough information to be terrified, but a lesser script would have someone like finding a journal from the Norwegians and they're reading about, Oh, this, it came from Mars. They came here for resources and giving us all this backstory and explanation that is not helping. Um, I like that. We never know more than the characters and even the characters are like making guesses. Like they don't know they're figuring this thing out the best that they can. And at the end of the movie, they probably got a lot of stuff wrong. You know, like we still don't know exactly uh, a lot of the details that go with it, but they're just they're just making their best guess. And yeah, one of my favorite scenes is McCready is uh, is figuring this out and he's explaining to them his understanding of it. In that it can you know be a perfect imitation of us uh, and it just takes, you know, one cell and it replicates and they call him out on it, especially a child. He's like, this is, I'm not buying into all this. He keeps saying voodoo nonsense. Like, how does it do that, McCready? And he goes, I don't know, because it's different than us, because it's from outer space. What do you want from me? Like, I don't, <laughs> I don't know the science of this, but like, it's from outer space. That should be all the explanation that you need. Like, we don't understand how it does it, but I'm telling you, based on what I've seen, this is what's happening. Right. And like at one point, you know, it's it's trying to build like a small flying saucer or something like that. So there's there's a whole yeah. thread of this thing just wants to escape. It just wants to get out of here. Like it's not trying to actually take over the world necessarily. 
But then when they destroy that and they basically, because that's why, that's why the Blair thing steals the generator and stuff. Cause it wants all the parts. Um, and then they destroy it. And then they kind of are. And then at that moment, basically the thing is like, well, I got no way to get off of here. So we're just gonna, because for a long time, I think it truly is. The thing is just trying to survive. And the paranoia of the, of the other guys is so palpable that it kind of forces it into these fight or flight situations. Like the idea that it was going to take over the world is not necessarily backed up by what the thing is actually doing. Um, and then the thing, like I said, it's building a flying saucer. It's trying to leave. Now the, you could again, try to assume that maybe it just wanted to fly somewhere where there were more people. Like we don't know, but that's the thing. Like yeah. that's the thing about the thing. Um, it's, it's, um, was the flying device it was making just to get off the planet? Was it just to get to civilization? Like, what did it actually try to do? And we don't know. And I actually, like you said, I appreciate that we don't know. Because first off, it ratchets up the paranoia way higher. Because, you know, you think of something like Independence Day, where we just conveniently had a secret government organization that knew all about these aliens and knew exactly what they wanted and knew exactly how to uh, interpret what they were going to do and what they were here for. Um, you never get that here. There's no, like, dossier of information assembled by the norwegians and i don't think the 2011 version does either i don't think it gives any deeper information on this thing Not that um, i remember and so i gotta rewatch that one. maybe i'll watch it after we're done here but um it's uh but i like that about this movie a lot just the sense of the unknown like i said you talk about the paranoia of the known versus the unknown they have no idea what this thing's trying to do you know they see it build the flying saucer and they're like ah it's trying to escape so they destroy it and it's like cool did you just you know, were you almost free? Like, was it just going to leave after that? Or did you now send it into a fight or flight response? You have that question of, are your actions making this worse than it otherwise might have been? Um, but then again, you look at the Norwegian thing. It's like, okay, cool. What happened there? Like, you know, that whole place went up in smoke and went up in flames. And it was it another situation where the paranoia of the people caused it? Or was the monster just trying to actually kill them? You don't know. Uh, well, maybe I will know a little bit more after I watch the 2011 version. but. Um, it's just so well done. It's a perfect balance because there's there are people who would be like, oh, well, we don't know anything, and I'd be like, yeah, it's better that way. Yeah. Speaking of like, you know, the end of the movie, there's a big debate. We're left with just McCready and Childs. Is one of them the thing? And I, I get that it's fun to debate. Uh, so I'm not dismissing anyone who does that, but it doesn't matter, and that's the point. Like I, I personally like. The movie doesn't have a definitive answer for me on whether or not one is a thing, so I'm not really going to waste my energy trying to figure it out. But the point is, these characters, these two in particular, have been at each other's throat this entire movie with their paranoia. Now they're at a situation at the end here where, one, they're going to die. The only heat they have is the building on fire. That's not going to last forever. No one's coming to save them. They haven't contacted anybody. They're going to die there. and. Two, if one of them is a thing, all right, who cares? Uh, it even says, like, if that is the case, we're not in any shape to do anything about it. And so they finally, finally let it go. They finally don't fight with each other. They share a drink. They realize they've reached the end, and they drop all the paranoia and violence they've had throughout the movie. Like, that's the point of that scene, is that it really, truly does not matter if one of them is the thing. This is where the story ends. Uh, so what I see happening, and this is, I think there's been 
quote-unquote official extension of this, almost the board game or, or something, but I'm, you know, we're just talking about the movie at hand here. Like, that place burns, the fire goes out, they freeze to death. The thing has to still exist in some form or another because it's in every single drop of blood, but it's going to freeze in the Antarctic. And it's going to be there until the next group of humans comes along and starts the whole process over again. Yep, that's, it that's, is. It's, it's a rather bleak ending is how I see the end of that. Right, and there's there's, I think, a fan theory that, like, the drink that uh, McCready gives Childs is actually, like, gasoline. And, like, if he drinks it and just reacts normally, then McCready knows the Childs the thing. Um, or oh. th- there's all sorts of theories on the ending. They're, but they're all that. They're just that. They're just theories. They're just ideas. Um, I think... I think... John Carpenter went on Stephen Colbert recently-ish, and he asked him, you know, he kind of asked him point blank. He's like, is one of them at the end of, he's like, is one of them at the end of the thing, the thing? And John Carpenter went, yeah, I know. And didn't say anything. <laughs> like, I loved it. I loved it. He yeah. was just like, yeah, I know, I could tell you definitively if one of them's the thing at the end of the thing, but I'm not going to. Keith, he's like, I know the answer to that question, but you don't need to know the answer to that question. And I just respect that immensely to be like, you know what? I know it's been 40 plus years at this point, but I'm still not going to tell you if one of them's the thing. Because like you said, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter to the end of that movie. They're both not surviving. So the thing is still there in the burning wreckage, and it's going to survive one way or the other. Um, And, you know, they mentioned that there was several different um uh endings shot there was a more straight up shot where McCready gets rescued and they determine that he's not the thing and he thought that was super cheesy and so there was an ending without childs where you don't find out what happens to childs um things like that so um i i think the ending they went with is the best ending i think it leaves it on exactly the right note given what the themes of the rest of the movie are you leave it on just that if neither one of us is getting out of here alive but who knows if one of us is the thing. And if we are, it doesn't matter. Um, there's been some continuations. Um, there's a board game that I own that I've never played. Um, because, of course, um, friends are hard. Um, there has been some comics published. I always kind of take those with a uh, um, grain of salt because it's a... Uh, um, I always take those with a grain of salt because comics are kind of just their own thing. They're really not intended to be. They, you know, I know people will say, "Oh, this is the official continuation," and I'm like, "Yeah," until there's a different official continuation. Like, you know, it's always it's always like, "Oh, this comic is endorsed by X, Y, and Z," and it's like, "Cool," until we endorse something else. Like, yeah, it's always yeah, it's that Star kind of Wars thing. Extended Universe is a perfect yeah, something that. like that. But so there was going to be a uh, a sci-fi channel was going to plan a four-hour miniseries that Frank Darabont was going to produce. Um, that was going to follow a Russian team who discovers like the remnants of the thing and then McCready and child's bodies. Um, and then it was going to move forward, um, into the present uh, at the time. And, uh, that ended up never going to, uh, that never went anywhere and kind of leads into the development of the prequel film. Um, and then I know they just described that there was a sort of going to be a sort of a remake. Um, that we've not seen anything of yet. And then there was a video game 
in 2002 that was released that I believe Kurt Russell sort of returns for. Um, and apparently it is decently received and it was endorsed by Carpenter. So a lot of people I've heard do enjoy that video game. It's probably available on Steam platforms or things of the like. Um, or things of the like. Um, so the story's been out there. It's one of those weird things where like, it feels like people kind of want to go back to it. And people have asked, in that same interview with Kurt Russell that where he talked about the big hat, and how he thought it was ridiculous. You know, people will... He talks about it, he's like, he's been asked lots of times. Like, you know, because the, there's a theory that uh, the Metal Gear Solid games, the character being called Snake, was originally just supposed to be Snake Plissken. Like, it, the, the Metal Gear Solid was intended as a Snake Plissken game. And he didn't really directly address that, but just kind of said that, like, his desire to go back is really pretty non-existent overall to a lot of that older stuff. Like, you know, obviously something like the MCU or, you know, Christmas Chronicles is not really, a, you know, something he sees with that. But, like, you know, going back to the thing or going back to Snake Plissken again or something like that, he kind of said that he's like, that doesn't really hold a whole lot of interest to him. He'd rather do, like, you know, he kind of implied that, like, if him and John Carpenter were going to do something, he'd want them to do something new. He wouldn't want to do old man Jack Burton or something. Yeah. Um, he'd want to do something new. So, you know, I hope they do. But this movie's got quite the legacy. Uh, I kind of respect that Kurt Russell is like also kind of in the, we don't need to do more with that. Yeah. I, I other than being called The Thing, uh, the 2011 movie I think was doing about as best of thing you can do, like a companion piece, a love letter. Can't remake it because you can't top it. It is what it is. About the best way you can go about doing that. And I mean, to everybody's credit, they haven't tried to straight up remake it yet uh, uh, successfully. So, um, because why? <laughs> it's, why? It's, What's the it's, point? It's, 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 it's so good. Uh, one last note before we get out of here. I'm just going through my notes in the movie here. Um, I love that in Blair's shack, whenever uh, McCready goes to talk to him, there's just a noose hanging from the ceiling. And they never acknowledge it, but there's just a casually a noose hanging between them as they talk to each other. Yeah, I, I and that was another moment where I kind of assume that it is some point after he got to the shack that he becomes the thing. If anything, it might have been Fuchs or whoever was the thing at that point going to the shack and turning him before he managed to kill himself. Um, because it looked like that's where Blair was headed. Um, then again, leading more into my theory that Blair is not the thing when he is put into the shack, but he is by the time he leaves. Well, he definitely is by the time he leaves. Right. Um, because he by the time he builds the UFO, I think he's the thing. Yeah. Uh, he's trying to, he's just trying to get out of the sight himself. He doesn't actually, he's not the thing. He just doesn't <laughs> want to be there. Um, he's like, I got to get out of here and I can't use this helicopter. Um, but um, uh, anyway, um, the noose I think is telling because it says to me that Blair was about to kill himself to stop from becoming part of the cycle and then got stopped. That's what that says to me. He Before he completed that, somebody interrupted and he turned into the thing. Or maybe the thing was inside him already and that's just when it's a cold. Who knows? But that's the one thing they do play fast and loose with. Is like, if you get infected, how long before the thing takes hold? Now, Blair very much sees kind of in real time, so it's probably not very long. But, um, but yeah, 
they yeah, I do love that that's just there and not mentioned. We got bigger problems, man. <laughs> Maybe the thing was the friends we made along the way, Andrew. <laughs> Childs. Childs is the friend we made the whole way. Um, and that might have actually honestly been a thing that told uh, McCready. You know, don't call attention to it, but the fact there's a noose in there and nobody used it, that's pretty telling. Um, so you got to think that that might have also been part of why McCready was like, no, you get to stay put. You know, Andrew, we've joked a few times already that this month, our technically poorly received upon release month, is uh, easier than normal. Not as challenging to come up with positives. And that was certainly the case this week with The Thing. But like I kind of said in the beginning, like I, I had seen this movie before. I liked it. Um, but my enjoyment of it definitely went up. So this this ended up being... Not challenging, but certainly fun to talk about. I love this movie, and I love talking about films, and it is a nice change of pace to discuss something so well-regarded. But next week, we are talking Blade Runner, a movie I have seen before a couple of times. I'll be honest with you, I don't hate it or anything. It's just never really clicked with me. And, you know, we are watching the original cut, which is not fans' preferred cut, but it is where it all begins. Curious where I land with this one. Very curious to go revisit this. Guys, the podcast rides on this, so if next week doesn't go well, then it's the end. Um, I'm just saying. Um, no, I, I love Blade Runner. I have not watched the theatrical in some time. Um, I am interested to go back to that. Um, and we'll have plenty more to say about Blade Runner next week. But until then, it's time for our question of the week. And if you want to leave us a question for a future episode of the podcast, you can do exactly that by hopping into our Discord server. If you're not there already, there's a link to it in our show notes. Come and join us. Join the community. Talk about nerdy stuff. Leave us questions. Just like Mike Lynch, who says, have you ever had a film dream where you're either the star or just a passive viewer? Interesting. A film dream i assume he means where like you're inside the movie or inside the world of a movie um i certainly had movies make their way into my dreams but this is pretty specific andrew what do you how about you a lot of film dreams in your life uh i wouldn't necessarily say i have i i i've definitely had film dreams before i don't think i have them a lot i don't know that i've ever had one where i was like in a movie, just because if it's a dream, I don't usually view it from a sense of like I'm in a movie. But um, I do remember having a dream. This one's very vivid in my brain. Is I had a dream that Ghostbusters three already existed, and um, <laughs> this I saw is the most everybody. Andrew Williams dream I've ever heard. Yeah, uh, we're not done yet though. Uh, so I had a dream that that movie already existed, and so when all my friends kept getting pissed off that Ghostbusters three wasn't happening. I thought I was losing my mind because I kept telling them, guys, that movie already exists. And they were like, no, it doesn't. And so in this dream, I was apparently the only person that remembered Ghostbusters 3 existed. And nobody would believe me when I told them it did. So, yes, it is the most Andrew dream possible. Because everyone's wrong but Andrew. (laughs) Yes, everyone's wrong but me. Um, But uh, 
I just remembered that I I don't even remember like the full like details. I actually remembered like plot points of the movie and stuff. Like I was like, this is weird, but like genuinely I was like, guys, that movie's already there. And they were like, no, it's not. What are you talking about? And I was like, it's there. It's, it's, it's all this stuff happens. And they were like, dude, that's no, that's not a thing. So yeah, in a dream world, I apparently made up Ghostbusters three and was super weird that nobody remembered it. Um, is this before 2016 Ghostbusters? Like this is still like, it was before afterlife for sure. I don't know if it was before okay. 2016 Ghostbusters. Um, but yeah, it was wild. I was just like, and then I woke up and I was like, that was a heck of a thing. <laughs> But uh, did you still remember any of those plot details? Did you have like a actually really good script form in your brain? I and I don't not to that level. There's thing like the only thing I really remember is that apparently at the end of it they were all dead, and the kind of what? lasting, the last moment of the thing was like like the last moment was them like as ghosts playing cards around a table or something like as friends like for one last time. <laughs> I don't really remember much else. Um, Maybe the plot was like some of them had like, you know, it might have been after Harold Ramis passed. So maybe this was them finally all being together again in my head. Um, I don't really remember a whole lot else. Um, I just remember that I was like, guys, that movie's already out there. What are you talking about? So, yeah, it's a dream about Ghostbusters where I'm right and everybody else is wrong. So that's the quintessential (laughs) Andrew dream. (laughs) That's great. I don't. Man, I don't know. I don't know if I have. I don't. I certainly don't have anything that vivid as far as. a dream. I've certainly like, like walked through plots of movies that don't exist in my dream, and like had a story unfold as if I'm experiencing it, but clearly I'm creating it, uh, which is the nature of dreams, and it's very bizarre. But usually, and I don't have specifics for you now, but like I'll wake up and be like, "Wow, I just lived through this whole story." And I reflect back on it. I'm like, man, that is terrible. Like, that makes no sense. But, like, in the moment, in the dream, you're following the plot point A to point B. Then you wake up and you're like, oh, yeah, things just randomly change from, quote, unquote, scene to scene. And it makes no sense. So I've created some really bad movies in my dreams. But (laughs) uh, an existing movie universe, I can't think of one that's made a sway to my dreams. But um, maybe tonight. Maybe I'll I'll manifest this and try to think of <laughs> think about movies really deeply. Uh, I'll think about the thing. See if I can put myself in that world. That'd be terrifying. Uh, but how about you? Do you have any vivid film dreams out there? Have you been the star of a movie and turning yourself into a film? I would absolutely love to hear about it. You can let us know right there in that Discord. And come back next week for Blade Runner. And just remember that maybe... Not every movie is great. But all movies have greatness. Thank you to Mark Benavides for singing our theme song. You can follow him on Instagram at NotThatMarkAnthony. And thanks to Mitch for the music. Check him out on Twitter at I'mTheBiggieBoy. And check our show notes for the SoundCloud link. Check out our store on Public for some best of the rest merch. And if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. Because that is the only way that we grow. Follow us on social media at B-O-T-R cast. Thank you.
at an American research station in Antarctica. Oof, this is a hard sentence to say. <laughs> at an American research station in Antarctica during... <laughs> now I'm going to have my... My version of the episode is going to be me emphasizing things really strangely now. Uh, let me try one more time. 